The House recently passed its 2023 defense authorization bill, and in it are some provisions relating to service member marijuana use and possession. In particular, asking the Military Justice Review Panel to come up with new sentencing guidelines. Federal News Network's Scott Mossioni spoke with the author of that particular provision, Maryland Democratic Congressman Anthony Brown. The Uniform Code of Military Justice is in you know, dramatic need of reform in many areas. Uh, we know that we're seeing disparate impact on black and brown service members who are investigated, prosecuted, you know, convicted and discharged from the military at higher rates. And I think similar to what we see you know, outside of the military, you see black and brown service members being charged with marijuana possession at higher rates than white service members, yet the usage rates are the same. So what I've done is introduce an amendment that, that simply asked the military review panel, the military justice review panel, to look at sentencing for cannabis-related offenses and alcohol-related offenses, such as, you know, being drunk on duty. Um, in the case of cannabis, depending on the quantity, you're subject to a dishonorable discharge and up to five years of confinement, whereas drunk on duty which, you know, I would say arguably is even more egregious. It's uh, the maximum penalties of bad conduct discharge and two years of confinement. So, you know, the amendment isn't seeking to decriminalize marijuana in the, in the military. It's not seeking to certainly move towards adult lawful use. It's simply asking the military justice review panel to uh, review sentencing of marijuana-related offenses with those of comparable offenses such as alcohol. And would this take a look at anything that has to do with people who have maybe prior offenses moving into the military? You know, I know that that's sort of an an issue, especially considering the amount of uh, talent that the military is trying to bring in and the, the shrinking talent pool that it has. Sure. So this is not related to that. This focuses on proceedings, whether it's, you know, courts martial or non-judicial punishment uh, under the Uniform Code of Military Justice. However, uh, now that you raise that issue, I can tell you I've had a number of conversations uh, with senior military leaders who recognize uh, that uh, records, criminal records uh, for things like small quantity possession or even arrests that don't lead to prosecution for small uh, quantities of marijuana really deprives the force, the total force of a lot of talent. And interestingly enough, uh, a few years ago, I was at uh, the Cyber Command, uh, where they were thinking about the the, the types of, of warriors that they want, who are creative and innovative, and maybe when they're in high school or or in college, you know, they they've used uh, marijuana, even with or without a conviction, if they if they disclose that during a security clearance process, it may, it may be an obstacle too high for them to overcome to actually get the job, whereas there's a lot of talent there. So I think the military recognizes that we've got to also take another look at how we treat people who have record for possession of small quantities of marijuana or marijuana use. 
this kind of touches on, as, as you alluded to, some of the issues that the military has with race. And that's something that you've been working very hard on in this term and in your previous terms within the NDAAs. Can you tell me a little bit about what you're thinking about in terms of military and race, especially since the George Floyd uh, era of things has, has gone on? What have you been hearing from your constituents in the military? And you know, are there any other provisions that you were working on that dealt with this? It's really important to collect data so you can best understand uh, the problem and identify perhaps solutions. So last year in the Defense Authorization Act, uh, we were successful in directing the Secretary of Defense to collect data around race and ethnicity, gender, age, and rank uh, regarding every critical step in a proceeding under the Uniform Code of Military Justice. So whether it's an investigation, uh, whether it's a, an indictment, or whether it's a prosecution and conviction and sentencing, to report that those events and provide the demographic data um, so that we can see where is it that what is contributing to the fact that if you're a young airman, uh, African-American airman, you're two and a half times more likely to be investigated, convicted, and discharged from the Air Force than your white counterpart who commits a similar offense. So I think it's important to, to collect data to identify where uh, in the process we're seeing you know, racial biases play out, because I think that's really what it is. I think it's biases. It may be the commanders. It may be judges. It may be the military panels. I suspect um, more likely uh, it's uh, with commanders who are over- referring charges and uh, cases to court-martial. Changing gears a bit, you know, the recent Roe decision definitely puts some pressure on service members who may need care that uh, is not offered in their state. You know, is there any role for Congress in, in this? An amendment was introduced during markup in the House Armed Services Committee this year to expand access provided at uh, no cost to the service member's family for uh, abortion services and contraception. Uh, and under TRICARE, it's it's not available. So there's certainly a will among the Democratic caucus in Congress uh, to ensure that we are providing service members and their families with uh, the services that they uh, would get if they were civilian, right? Um, access and funding, insurance coverage for abortions, abortion services, uh, reproductive health services, including contraception. So that's, that's, that's been part of our effort this year, and I imagine it will be ongoing uh, in the years to come, particularly uh, in light of the Dobbs decision uh, from the Supreme Court. In terms of the NDAA writ large and uh, funding for the Defense Department, you know, there's been some rumblings about how inflation is going to be affecting the Defense Department's buying power. How do you feel about the top line? And, uh, you know, do you think the Defense Department has the resources that it'll need within the top line that's been uh, dictated within uh, your bill? I supported the increase in the top line, both in last year's NDAA as well as this year's, primarily because I wanted to ensure that all of our uh, quality of life issues were being addressed, whether it was barracks or family housing and other support services to the men and women in uniform. This year, uh, we included a, not only a pay raise, but uh, enhanced bonuses in certain specialties. So I've always been focused on the quality of life issues, uh, first and foremost. And if and when they are included uh, in any plus-ups to 
uh, the Department of Defense, uh, then I'm more likely to be supportive as I have been in the last two years. Uh, regarding the inflation uh, issue, yeah, inflation is real. Uh, it's real for everyday Americans at the grocery store and at the pumps, uh, and it's real for the Department of Defense and their procurement programs. So we don't want to um, sort of, you know, uh, limit our, our capabilities uh, and our ability to, you know, defend our nation uh, because the buying power is being eroded uh, by inflation, particularly in light of what's happening around the world today and in Ukraine, uh, our commitment to our allies and partners uh, in Europe, uh, the work that we need to do to make sure that we're adequately postured in the Indo-Pacific region. So, you know, now is not the time to flatline the DOD um, and to level fund them when inflation uh, is eroding the purchasing power of both, you know, American households uh, and uh, the DOD programs. Maryland Democratic Representative Anthony Brown speaking with Federal News Network's Scott Massioni. Be sure to check out Scott's story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Hello, I'm WIPA CEO Shane Canfield, and thank you for joining us on another episode of Lessons in Leadership. I'm honored to be joined by Angie Bailey, founder and CEO of Ananda Life. Angie has a remarkable career in public service, beginning as a GS2 clerk typist with the Social Security Administration, And over the next 40 years, Angie steadily worked her way up through the government, ultimately becoming the Chief Human Capital Officer at the Department of Homeland Security. She's been recognized with presidential rank awards by two administrations for leadership, innovation, dedication, and commitment to the country. Angie, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Shane. What a pleasure to be here. Angie, you've made quite a name for yourself as a leader in the federal workforce. Who was the first person you remember looking up to it? as a leader, and what about them inspired you? You I often think about this because, you know, sometimes we think of the people that we look up to the most as being somebody that throughout our career has, you know, been at the highest levels and all. But, you know, I've got to go back to honestly, whenever I was 10 years old, and uh, I remember I really wanted to play Little League baseball on a boys team. I was the only girl. And interestingly, it was the women who would keep saying to me that, no, I couldn't play. And then one day, whenever I was there to sign up yet again, uh, there was this guy, his name was Delbert Beiser. And uh, I remember he had like red hair and he had a wad of tobacco in his mouth and greasy overhauls and everything. And he said, you know, I'll take her, I'll take her on my team. And, you know, just looking back on that, there's so many leadership lessons and things that I just really admire about him. And actually I thought about throughout my entire career, he took a chance on somebody he didn't know. He um, put aside whatever conscious or unconscious biases that he might have had about having a girl on a team. He treated me the same, Uh, whether, you know, if I wasn't performing, I got benched just like the boys. I got no special treatment and, and, and he was just really honest with me and he just included me in everything. And so looking back on it, you know, really it was Delbert Beiser, our local mechanic in our little small village that was I think my inspiration for going on to, I hope, become the leader, um, you know, that that I wanted to be. I'd say half of the guests on this podcast have had similar stories where they reach back to either childhood or young adulthood, and I and I think as leaders, it's really incumbent upon us to keep that in mind that that what we say and do. especially in the younger ages, really can have a lifelong impact. How would you describe your leadership style and how has that developed over time? I would say that the one word that describes my leadership style is that I care. Um, 
I guess that's more than one word, but I care. Uh, I, I've always cared about the mission. I've always cared about the people. I've always cared, you know, about making sure that that they had what they needed or that they were developing the way, uh, you know, that they aspired to develop. And I tried to take this approach of not treating people the way I wanted to be treated, but instead treat people the way they wanted they want to be treated. And I think that that really kind of developed over my career. You know, I started out just like most leaders do where it's very results driven. It's all about the bottom line. You need to make sure that you get everything accomplished because, you know, that's what everybody's looking for, the goals, the metrics, et cetera. But I think as you mature and you go along, you start to, to your point, you draw back on those early childhood days or early adult young, you know, whenever you're a young adult and you say, you know, I think that there's a little bit more to this than just the bottom line. And so over time, I really began to, I, I think, see a much bigger picture and the entire ecosystem, if you will, and how the people themselves fit into all of this. And that ultimately, at the end of the day, it was all about the people. And so, I, you know, I think my, my maturity allowed me to then shift and focus more on the people than, than so much on results and bottom line. You've been recognized with two presidential rank awards two different administrations. You founded your own company. Tell us a little bit more about your background from the beginning and and how did that lead you to where you are today? Well, you know, it's kind of interesting, like you said, that I started out as a GS2, Social Security Administration. I mean, what I really wanted to be was a criminal prosecuting attorney. That was absolutely my dream. I sometimes joke and say what I really wanted to be was a mafia don, but that wasn't going to work out. So, you know, had to be a criminal prosecuting attorney. But, you know, I had to get a job to pay for college. I, you know, it wasn't in the cards that I was going to be able to go to college without a job. So I applied at the Social Security Administration, or I'm sorry, at the unemployment office, and lo and behold, I got a job at Social Security. I didn't even know it was federal, to be honest. Uh, from there, I went to the Department of Defense, and I found this, this career field called labor and employee relations. And honestly, it was as close as I was going to get to being a criminal prosecuting attorney. I didn't go on to be a, a criminal prosecuting attorney, but I went on courtesy of the Department of Defense to get both my bachelor's and my master's in leadership, because the whole study of leadership, I just find incredibly fascinating. Um, you know, from hi- historical to current uh, current times, I just, it's just something that's just really fascinated me. And so I just, I would say I'm a lifelong learner of leadership. And then I would say some of the other things that got me maybe where I am today is I never really said no to anything. If people asked me to take on a new challenge, even if I wasn't sure I was going to be successful at it, I would say, you know what, not sure this is going to work out, but more than happy to give it a try. And it always worked out. But I think giving things a try and just not saying no to opportunities is what really led from one position to the next. I feel like I was always rewarded for just stepping in or stepping up and taking on the challenges that sometimes no one else wanted to do. Angie, thanks so much for joining us today. Oh, thank you, Shane. It's such a pleasure. I I really appreciate you giving me this opportunity. Thank you. This has been the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm CEO of WEPA, Shane Canfield. Looking forward to talking to you next time. This episode is brought to you by Zelle. Whenever you're sending money through an app or online, it's important to do it safely. Here are a few helpful tips. First, always make sure you know and trust the person you are sending money to. Second, 
confirm you have entered their contact details correctly. And finally, if you don't trust the person or your recipient is rushing you to send money right away, think twice before sending money through an app or online. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.